to be with you again for another one of our Bible studies. And uh, we're just so grateful for the goodness of the Lord in all of our lives and for protecting us during this pandemic. And um, I got my shot the other day, so um, I'm up to speed. So oh, just good. waiting for my next one in three weeks. God bless. Okay. All is well? Yes and no. All righty. It's okay. All right. Um, yeah. Dealing with Praise a lot. Amen. Yeah. Well, let's open up with prayer and we'll begin. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day that you have made. We rejoice. We're glad to be a part of it. We thank you, Lord, for the good work that you're doing in us. Even until the day of Jesus Christ, we give you praise, glory, and honor for our study today. We thank you, Lord, for hearing and answering our prayers and being with us through every test and trial. We thank you, Lord, for the entrance of your word gives us light and understanding and help us to comprehend the word and apply it to our lives. Continue to bless all of our listeners, all of the families and friends. Continue to keep us all in the center of your will. And we ask these blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been talking about the power of right believing and how important it is that if we believe right, we can receive right. And uh, the scripture gives us many illustrations and examples of individuals in the Bible who believed God according to his word and those who didn't believe correctly. And so it's important for us when we are praying and trusting God to answer our prayers that our believing is correct according to the Bible our last session that we were together um, and studied, we, we looked at two individuals. We looked at Zechariah, who was a priest in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, and how he believed incorrectly. And then in that same chapter, around verse 26, we saw Mary, the mother of Jesus, and she believed correctly, and she received... Uh, the promise that God had given her to have a child. And mm -hmm. um, so what we're going to do today is that we're going to be looking at another example of believing correctly. So we want to go to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Amen. Amen. And we're going to be talking this morning about Hannah. We can learn so many wonderful things from her life that we can apply to our lives, especially in our relationship with God and with others. And uh, so we pick up in the story of Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 1. And in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel... The Bible says in verse 5, But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, 
This was her husband, and whom she was married to. For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. We see two things here from this scripture, that Hannah was greatly loved by her husband, but the Lord had shut up her womb. It didn't say the devil shut her womb up, but the Lord shut her womb up. Why would God do something like that, especially during the days of Hannah when not being able to have a child was such a, st a stigma? Well, the Bible um. teaches us that when we are believers that we know that all things work together for our good because we love God and we're called according to his purpose. So even though the Lord had shut up her womb, he had a purpose for her life. The same God who can shut the womb is the same God who opens the womb. And uh, Hannah is a unique situation and example because she was not the first woman in the Bible who was barren or couldn't have children. Uh, we know of the story of Sarah and Abraham. We studied that. And we studied um, how Sarah even doubted God. But God was faithful even though she wasn't faithful. And the Lord blessed Sarah and Abraham with the promised son. We're hearing a lot of feedback. Uh, yeah, that's not him. That's somebody else. Oh, oh okay. All right. Sorry. That's okay. And... Um, there was another example in the Old Testament of uh, Rachel, who was married to Jacob, and uh, she also struggled and was unable to have a child, and the Lord blessed her with a child. And so we see in uh, chapter 1 of First Samuel, in verse 6, and her adversary also... Do you have somebody her. else... Brother George, do you hear Hello? someone else talking? Like no. a phone? Oh, what do you hear? There's someone talking to someone else. Oh, you hear someone having a conversation? Yes. Oh, okay. And we can't hear you. And uh, they can't hear me. Okay, let's see. Uh, we'll take a moment. You're hanging up now, whatever. Oh, they just, they just hung up. Yes, okay. Okay, let's continue. <laughs> okay. And her adversary, Panina, uh, back in the day, men could have more than one wife. And Panina mm. was the other wife. And uh, she was provoking Hannah continually. We see this in verse 6. She provoked her sore to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. So Penilla, she was like an adversary to Hannah. And Satan was using her to provoke Hannah to cause her to worry and to fret. And... Uh, we notice in verse 7, as she did so year by year. So this was a constant provoking. 
by Panina, mm. the other wife, year by year, provoking her. And the Bible says in verse 7 that she did not eat Hannah. And so instead of Hannah responding or reacting to the, pro the provocation of being provoked by Panina, the other wife, she turned her plate down and she fasted and she kept her mouth closed. She didn't retaliate. She didn't get into an argument with her. She didn't quarrel with her. She didn't have any discord with the other wife. She just remained silent and fasted and prayed. And she allowed the Lord to fight for her. And so she learned to be still and let God fight her battles. And that's an important lesson for us today because we are all going through something and there are those who may want to provoke us or agitate us. And really what the enemy is doing through others is to cause us to get out of our faith and cause us to react and say something that later on we might regret. But Hannah is a wonderful example of a person who is being persecuted and how to respond to persecution and not just to react out of her emotions and strike back with words, but she remained silent and continue to pray and fast and trust in God. Verse 8. And Elkanah, her husband, came to Hannah and asked her why she was crying and why she was not eating and why her heart was grieved. And he said to her, Am I not better than ten sons to you? Why are you crying? Why are you grieving? And in verse 9, the Bible says that Hannah did something that all of us should do when we're going through a trial, a tribulation, or a test. The Bible says that Hannah rose up. She got up. She got up from that situation. She rose up. And the Bible says that she went and got something to eat. In Shiloh, that was the place of worship. And in Shiloh was where they came to worship God and to receive ministry from the priest, in particular Eli the priest. And the Bible says in verse 10 that Hannah was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept. And so she didn't turn to her friends she didn't turn to other individuals for comfort and for relief. The Bible says she prayed, she turned to the Lord. And the Bible says in verse 11 that in her prayer she made a vow to God to look upon her affliction and to remember her and to give her a child. And what Hannah teaches us is that whatever we're praying for and believing God for, we should be willing to give back to God what he has given to us. Because whatever gift he gives us is only alone for a short period of time and that everything belongs to God. And whatever we receive, instead of coveting it and being selfish with it,
we should dedicate it back to the Lord for his glory. And we see Hannah doing this with her prayer requests and making a vow to God and keeping the vow. And the Bible says in verse 12, And it came to pass as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli the prophet marked her mouth, or he was noticing her while she was praying. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought that she had been drinking. And uh, in the next verse, in verse 4, 14, Eli said to her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. So now the priest is accusing her of being drunken. And one thing that I love about Hannah, she was such a respectful person to everyone, especially to those in authority over her like the priest. And um, if we've studied the book of 1 Samuel, we understand that Eli the prophet was in a backslidden condition. And uh, he did not discipline his sons, and they were out of control, and Eli was a backslidden prophet. But Hannah still respected him, because she learned to respect the office of a prophet. For the Bible teaches that the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. They are irrevocable. What does that mean? That simply means that those who are in positions of authority, may be out of the will of God, they may be backslidden, but because of the office that they stand in and they operate in, that we should always respect the office of the president, the office of the priest, the office of the pastor, the office of the government. We should always respect the office, even though the individual is not living the way they should be living, we should always respect the office. Because the office doesn't sanctify whoever that leader is. That leader sanctifies the office. And so Hannah understood this. And instead of retaliating and defending herself after being accused, she honored and she reverenced Eli the priest, even though he was backslidden. And we noticed in verse 15, Hannah answered, and said, No, my Lord, in respect, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have neither drinking wine nor strong drink. I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thy handmaiden as the daughter of Belial. That's a worshiper of devils. For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I have spoken hitherto. And so what Hannah teaches us when we're going through a difficult test and trial, that whenever we have complaints about whatever we're going through, we should always take our complaints to the Lord first. There's a lot of temptation to complain to our friends or to our loved ones and to dump all of our problems on them and complain about what we're going through. 
But before we go to man, we should always go to the Lord first. And God will not rebuke us. He will not censure us. He will not get angry at us if we complain to him. Because God is really the only one that can do something about our problems. And so we should always go to God first with our complaints. But some of you might be saying, well, I was taught that we shouldn't complain. Well, the Bible gives us many examples of patriarchs who were going through tests and trials who complained to God. Job complained. Jeremiah complained. King David complained throughout the Psalms. So it's not the complaint that God has a problem with. It's how we complain and who we complain to. And so we should always complain to the Lord. We can bring every care, every problem, every concern, and we can lay it in the hand of God. I often say if we put our problems in God's hands, he puts his peace in our hearts. And we see this through the example of Hannah as we read in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. She complained to the Lord in verse 17. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant thee thy petition, which thou hast asked of him. And so even though Eli was a backslidden prophet, God was still using him because gifts and callings of God are without repentance. They're irrevocable. What does that mean? That means that even a believer can still function in spiritual gifts and not be walking correctly with the Lord. Because when God gives us a gift, he doesn't take it back from us. But we have to give an account of all the gifts that we receive from God on Judgment Day. Any questions about anything that we've covered so far in the Scripture? Um, oh, it's, well, no, no, I'm, I'm clear. Okay, you know. verse 18. Now, this is how we know that Hannah was operating in Bible-believing faith, how she was believing correctly. We find in verse 18... She said, let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat. And her countenance or her face was no longer saddened. So even before she became pregnant with the baby Samuel, even before her circumstances changed, her attitude changed, and her facial expression changed. So I often wonder, beloved, how it is that a person who calls himself a Christian and can go into prayer, go to prayer meeting, get on their knees, and they pray, and they go down sad and depressed, and then after the prayer is over, they get up, and they're still angry, they're still depressed, they're still grieving, they're still worrying. It makes me wonder about that prayer. Because I believe that prayer changes things 
And it also changes people, and it will change us if we allow prayer to change us. Hannah operating in believing faith, right faith, when she received the promise of the prophet, her whole countenance changed. The look on her face was no longer saddened because she believed that God had heard her prayer and answered her prayer, and she received the answer, and it changed her attitude, her disposition. It even changed the look on her face. She was no more saddened. And, and I guess and that, you could say she was operating in faith. Yes, she certainly was. <laughs> she was operating in faith because God only honors faith. He doesn't honor unbelief, doubt, and worry, and fretting. Mm. When we get into that realm, we have just slipped into the devil's system mm -hmm. because that's how Satan works. He puts a thought in our mind, or somebody yep. comes against us, or somebody says something, or to try to upset us, and all of a sudden now we've shifted from our faith into our emotions, into our thinking, what they said, what they did, and all of a sudden now we begin to operate in the wrong realm. We begin to operate in Satan's system. Right. And so he begins to torment us. But the Bible says that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7 So we know that when we are worried, we are being tormented. And most of the things that we worry about never come to pass anyway. And worry is like sitting in a rocking chair and moving back and forward, but going nowhere. It is a waste of time. Mm-hmm. And so we have to always remind ourselves, am I operating in fear? Am I operating in worry? Am I fretting? Am I stressing over something that I absolutely have no control over? And so we learn this example from Hannah. Any questions? Mm. I love the serenity prayer. I often pray it often. And many of you are familiar with the serenity prayer. It simply says, Lord, give, give me the courage to change the things that I can change. Mm. And the serenity, the peace, to accept the things that I cannot change. And Lord, help me, give me wisdom and insight to know the difference. Mm. And uh, oftentimes, there are things that we can change, and we can do something about it like our attitude. But then there are things in other people's lives and other circumstances that are outside of our ability to change it. And those are the things that the enemy uses to torment us, to vex us. And those are the things that we leave in the hands of God because he's able to change any situation. Mm or anything that we're going through, God is the agent of change. Any questions? Uh, I gave an acrostic last week of fear. Does any of you remember that? If not, I have it here. F equals false. 
Right. E equals expectation. A equals appearing. And R equals real. And R equals real. So fear is false expectations appearing to be real. And people are struggling with all different types of fears today. And they are being tormented by fear. All kinds of fears. Fear of failure. Fear of taking a risk. Fear of not having enough money to pay the bills. Fear about not having enough food or clothing. Fear about the future. Fear of losing something. Fear of taking the coronavirus. People are battling and struggling with all kinds of fear. And the very root of fear is unbelief. And where do we find that out? I remember reading in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had disobeyed God and sinned, the first indicator that they had broken God's law is when God, in the cool of the day, began to go and look after Adam and Eve and called out to them. When Adam responded, the first thing he said why he was hiding himself, he said, because I was afraid. Mm. And when that fear of root takes place, then we begin to fret, we begin to worry, we begin to speculate. And our mind just begin to go out of, you know, out of whack. We are worrying and thinking the worst. And now we're operating on Satan's territory. And so we have to make a decision to get back into faith. Any questions? <laughs> well, the good news is that problems and worry and fear has no power over us. No power over us. We're powerful in Christ. And the Bible says the remedy of fear can be found in the book of 1 John, chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Let's take a look at that particular scripture. 1 John... Chapter 4, verse 18. The Apostle John speaking to the believers. In 1 John, chapter 4. And we're going to look around the 17, 18th verse. I'm right there. So follow with me if you can. Amen. The scripture says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love, mature love, Cast us out fear, because fear hath torment. He that is fearful is not made perfect in love or complete in love. That's in First John, mm -hmm. chapter four, around the seventeenth and eighteenth verse. Eighteenth verse, yeah. So the Bible says that there is no fear. In love, God is love, but perfect love, mature love, casts out fear, because fear hath torment. 
So fearful people are being tormented. They're being tormented. And that torment can lead to all other kinds of unsafe behaviors. Abusing opioids. Referring back to smoking and drinking to calm their nerves. And that's just what the enemy wants to do to us. But the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. Thank God for that. That's the solution, God's perfect love. And if we're believers, and we all should be believers, hopefully, Romans 5, 5 says that God has shed in our hearts the love of God. It's been shed in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So we have love. Mm -hmm. We have faith. Mm -hmm. We just have to operate, choose to operate it. Amen. Now, why is fear so terrible for the believer? If you go to Revelations 20... 1 and 8. Revelations 21, verse 8. And this is why we, we cannot accept ourselves to operate in fear, which leads to worry, stress, and fretting. In Revelations chapter 21, verse 8, if you're there, just say amen. 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 It says, but the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Mm. Now notice that scripture because... Most of us don't think very nicely about whoremongers and adulterers and homosexuals and, and root workers and sorcerers and idolaters and liars and murderers. I mean, that's a pretty terrible list of people there. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting. <laughs> Paul said over in First and Second Corinthians, he says, "And such were some of you." <laughs> and it, and he, it's sad he, to say. Go ahead, no, go ahead, just, Dorothy. I was just gonna say it's sad to see because this is what's happening today in the world. Oh yes, you know, and and it, it's very sad that yeah, for those unbelievers. Right, right. So, so, so when when the Apostle John mentions all of these individuals here in the book of Revelation uh, chapter 21 verse 8. He's not condemning these people or criticizing these people uh, because they have already through their own practices and lifestyle condemned themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> excuse me. But he is uh, shining some light and uh, I was just wondering, um, 
about the scripture over in First uh, Corinthians. Chapter 6. And um, it's a parallel to Revelations 21.8. It sounds almost the same. Uh, now, this particular scripture in First Corinthians 6, uh, verse 10, 9, 10, and 11, is similar to the one in Revelations 21.8. Now, the scripture that we read in Revelations 21.8, all of those individuals who practice these wicked deeds are going to be thrown into the lake which, burnt, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. These are unbelievers in Revelations 21 verse 8. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul here is talking about what believers used to be before they became believers or Christians. And so in verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, speaking to the church of Corinth who were believers, know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? That the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, no unrighteous person will inherit or obtain the kingdom of God or go into heaven. Be not deceived. Mm -hmm. Neither fornicators. Uh, that word fornication in the Greek uh, covers all sexual immorality. Uh, a fornicator covers adultery, bestiality, all kinds of lewd, crazy, wild, out-of-the-will sex. That word fornication covers all of that, all sexual immorality. Nor idolaters. Well, people say, well, I don't worship idols. Well, people don't worship too many idols today. Some do, but a lot of people will worship their house, worship their car, worship their job, worship some other human being. Well, when we say worship, what do you, uh, we're not talking about bowing down and worshiping. When we say idolaters, an idolater is anyone that puts anything before the true and living God. Anything. That's an idolater today. And uh, the Apostle John says, flee idols. Well, he wasn't just talking about statues. But anything that we would put before God is an idol to us. And so we see nor adulterers, nor effeminate, or homosexuals. I was listening to a um, program on TV, and I'm not going to give any names because I don't want to bash anybody, but it's this thing that I'm hearing on different talk shows that the church didn't treat homosexuals right as though they were being persecuted in the churches, in our churches, because homosexuals are in every church, that the church didn't treat them right, so they had to leave the church and start their own churches because we didn't embrace them. And I'm like, whoa, what do you mean we didn't treat them, them right? Well, the Bible looks at a homosexual no different than he looks at an adulteress or a fornicator. 
So there's no partiality or favorism should be in any church. We should love everybody and treat everybody equal. But people who are operating in these practices and these sins should not be in the leadership, should not be in the choir, should not be on the organ. They should not be in leadership. That doesn't mean that we're not treating any individual worse than any other individual who's sinning. The Bible says all unrighteousness is sin. And so therefore, we should love all of these people. And if these people can't come to our churches to receive Mm -hmm. salvation and help, where in the world can they go? So the Bible says, whosoever will, let them come. So we love all these people. We don't love their sin, and God doesn't love their sin, but he loves their personhood. So we love all of these people. We just don't love what they're practicing. And we're Mm -hmm. not picking on one individual sin or one individual person who is practicing these sins. Mm-hmm. nor adulterers, nor feminine, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, revilers nor extortioners. Those are people who smuggle you out of your money or cheat you out of your money. Mm-hmm. The Bible says that none of these people who practice these sins shall inherit the kingdom of God. And in verse 11, it says, in the words of Paul, and such were some of you. So that simply means that such were some of us, that if we're honest with ourselves, everyone who is a Christian falls in one or two of these categories of sinners, if we're honest with ourselves. Amen. Before God saved me and delivered me, I was a fornicator. And when I came to the knowledge of that, as a young adult, I laid that sin aside. And it's really unfortunate because uh, the church that I grew up in, nobody ever preached against fornication or this scripture that I just read or the one over in Revelation 21. I didn't even know it existed in the Bible. And if I had read it before, I didn't know what it meant. And so I remember coming home from college on semester break and uh, sharing with a friend of mine who was a believer and knew that these things were wrong. I was kind of like bragging and talking about what I was doing. And uh, he looked at me and says, do you know what God said about that? And I says, "Uh, no. And he opened up the Bible and showed me where God said it was a sin here to fornicate. And as a backsliding believer, when I heard the truth, I was so convicted that I had to go back and tell my girlfriend, no more sex before marriage. That's a sin. So the question is, are Christians today practicing these sins in the churches that some of you are familiar with? What do you think? Do you think that there are believers or who call themselves believers in the church who are practicing these sins? Can I get some feedback? What do you think? I, I would say yes. Well, yeah, it goes on. It definitely goes on. Um, no church is perfect. Yeah. 
Amen. And these people need to come to church so they can get delivered. Amen. <laughs> you know, and they should, and they're, they're in every congregation. But that doesn't mean that we look down on them and treat them unfair. But if we know they are practicing these deeds, uh, the Bible says that we shouldn't go out to lunch with them. Oh, don't go out to lunch with them. Boy, that's so cruel. Don't eat with them. That's so cruel. Well, by letting them know that they're, what they're doing is wrong, you're actually practicing love, speaking the truth in love without judging them, without condemning them, like my friend did for me and brought me to the knowledge of the truth. He wasn't condemning what I was doing, but he was just letting me know that it was offensive to God and that if I continued to practice that, I would lose my soul. And his love for me and his friendship for me was greater than hurting my feelings. So I thank God for friends who love us enough to tell us the truth when we're wrong, speaking the truth in love without condemning, without condemnation, without putting folks on a guilt trip, but just being honest with them because you love them and you don't want them to lose their soul behind a sin that they can repent and, re and turn from and be forgiven. And so this is love here that we're talking about in the scriptures and truth, love and truth. In verse 11, Paul continues to say, but such are some of you who are washed, washed by the sanctification process of the word. That's what the word does. It washes us and cleanses us from all sin. And you are sanctified. That word sanctified means to be set apart exclusively for God. Sanctification doesn't mean women wearing hats to church and women not wearing pants and women wearing dresses down to the ankle. That is not biblical sanctification. That is church tradition and denominationalism and certain church movements. But true sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer where that believer's life now begins to be set apart exclusively for the purposes and the glory of God. And every believer who is saved is sanctified. The first work of grace is salvation. The second work of grace is sanctification. And that is a process. Over the years, we become more sanctified, more dedicated to God, taking off the old man, and putting on the new man. That's the process of sanctification. Stop lying and telling the truth. Stop being dishonest and being honest. That's sanctification. All of us continually go through the process of sanctification until the day we die. And then we receive our glorified bodies when Jesus comes back for the church some call it the rapture, and we will receive our glorified bodies. That's the third work of grace. But until then, we are all going through the process of sanctification, laying aside every sin and the weight that so easily besets us and running the Christian race with patience. 
taking off the old man, putting on the new man. That's the process of sanctification that Paul is speaking about in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians verse 11. But ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God saves us. Justification, just as if I've never sinned. Justification by faith. The Holy Spirit justifies us. He saves us. He washes us. He sanctifies us. The Holy Spirit, through the reading of the Word, through our Bible studies, through our prayers, through our encouragement of other believers, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, justifies us, washes us by His Spirit and by His power. And so... Um, as we study these principles, uh, we see that fear and unbelief is categorized with all the other sins that we would think would be so egregious. <laughs> you know, we don't seem to want to put fear and unbelief in the same category as a murderer. But to God, there's no difference. All unrighteousness is sin. So any believer who is a Christian, who is operating in fear and doubt and unbelief and worry and stressing, is in the same category of a murderer, a liar, a thief, and any of those other sins that the Bible mentions in these two scriptures. That's the seriousness of right believing and believing correctly. Any questions? Hmm. Um, I, I don't know how to put it into words and um Go ahead. yeah I, I never knew that the fear would be categorized the, the same as with all the other sins yeah um, as, as we would say chief sins but there's really no chief and little sin. All sin is unrighteous to God. All sin is breaking the commandments of God, the transgressing of God's law. But right. God, as you were saying, Dorothy, all of these sins are in the mm -hmm. same category. Mm -hmm. As right. far as so, being an abomination to God. When you go through certain trials in life, and you come upon situations that bring on that fear. And, you, you know, um, you go back to the scriptures to support and, and to identify where that fear is, where the fear is coming from. Amen. Who's the bringing it on? Yeah. Um, and we know God is not the source. No, no. Because he didn't so, give us that spirit. Right. Give okay. us the spirit of sound mind. Um, and, and, all right, so we're, we're dealing with that, but you're, you're not giving in because you're rebuking where it's coming from. And you, you have to do it with scripture and, and deep prayer. And not um, receive the spirit of fear. Right. Not receive but, the worry and the care and the fretting. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
you know, sometimes you feel as though your your whole being is trembling. Oh, definitely. And, yeah, you ward it off. And in prayer, you have to uh, ask God to give you the strength, the courage, and the peace to abide in order to get through. And fear is a very strong emotion. Mm-hmm. And it's not a sin to feel fear. It's not a okay. sin to feel fear in our emotions. Fear is an emotion. Mm-hmm. But David said in Psalm 60, 56 in verse 3, he says, whenever I'm afraid, he admitted he was, he was afraid. He says, whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in the Lord. See, that's mm-hmm. the key. Right. It's not, we don't have to be ashamed of being afraid or being fearful. We don't have to be ashamed of that. God mm-hmm. knows we're human. He knows we have feelings and emotions. The problem is, is when we stay there in fear. Mm-hmm. And then that develops into worry and fretting and, and all of the other, you know, connections to that. But right. we can make a decision to say, I will trust in the Lord. Always. Mm-hmm. I will trust in God. That's our choice. It begins mm-hmm. with a decision. Mm-hmm. And we can get out of that realm of fear. Right. Right. Because it can, it, it can cripple you. <laughs> it can paralyze us. That's right. It can cripple us. Right. Well, yeah. in our closing, our time is slipping away from us. But there are some things that uh, we learn from Hannah's life as we sum up our Bible study uh, for this edition, for this session. And uh, one of the things that um, I've learned from Hannah's example is that, number one, she never gave up hope that God would hear and answer her prayer. Regardless of her circumstances, she never gave up hope. Number two, she took her request to God and prayed powerfully, and she prevailed. Hannah knew how to respond with grace and not respond to the torments and the ridicule and the accusations that came from Pania, the other wife, and from Eli the prophet, who judged her unjustly. She did not respond in anger. She didn't retaliate. She kept her mouth shut. She prayed. She turned her plate down. She trusted God to fight her battles. And she won, and she prevailed. We also learned that Hannah praised God and thanked him for the answer of her prayer. And that's one thing that we should do when we are in prayer. We should never forget to give God thanks for hearing us and for answering us. And then lastly, what we learned about Hannah is that when she prayed and believed God heard her, it changed her attitude, her disposition. Mm -hmm. It even changed the look on her face. She was Mm -hmm. no longer saddened by her her tormentors or her circumstances of what she was going through. Once she received her promise, her answer to prayer, She had peace in her heart, and she no longer fretted 
and cried and worried and stressed. She walked away. She got up. She walked away in victory. And that's what God wants to do for us, beloved. He wants us to put our problems and our cares in His hands. And He'll put His peace in our hearts. He said, peace I leave with you, this peace I give to you, not as the world gives. And the peace that we have and the joy that we have from the Lord Jesus Christ, no one can take that from us. The world doesn't give it to us, and the world can't take it away from us. The only way that we lose our peace and joy is when we give it away. Mm. And we're not going to allow Satan or people or circumstances to steal our peace and joy. Because when, when we lose our peace and joy, it affects our faith. And we don't want to be in that kind of condition. We want to continue to have faith, peace, joy, and hope in our hearts so that we can be a vessel, an instrument that God can use so that we can encourage others. Um, so what did you guys learn from our lesson today? One thing or maybe something that you learned that you can take away that's applicable, that you can apply to your life? Well, when we pray, we should pray from from our heart, from our inner soul. Amen. You know, from the Holy Ghost within us. Um, and always give thanks. Always, always. give thanks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Amen. Um, and um, to just be still, stay in prayer, trust in God, mm -hmm. and, and, and praising God for delivering and providing whatever you need. You don't have to keep reminding him. Amen. Just be, you know, patient and wait. And, um, you know, there's no need to go to anyone else but God first and always. Always Amen. first. Amen. Because he's the source of providing all that we all that we need. And the thing is, God knows what we're going through. So yes, even before does. we ask him, he's there. He knows. Yes. He and really he will knows. provide. Amen. And when we have problems in our lives, they only come to make us strong. Circumstances being tested. It's only to make us strong, strong in the Lord. Right. And that's why God allows us to go through. And the only way to get through is to go through and to trust God. And we'll right. find ourselves on the other side of it. If we continue to trust God and walk by faith and not by sight. Right. Amen. Well, beloved, we love you all. And we pray that um, your holiday season would be blessed. Mm. Uh, on Easter Sunday, amen, and we thank God for the life, the death, and the burial of our Lord Jesus Christ and the victory of walking in the power of Jesus' resurrection. Amen. We are victorious in Christ mm. because he rose, and one day we shall rise again, and he lives in us. Amen. Because he lives I can face tomorrow because he lives. All fear is gone because he lives. I know mm. he holds my future and our future and that life is worth living 
because our Lord and Savior Jesus lives. God bless you, beloved. We're going to close in prayer at this time. Father, we thank you for our study today. We cast every care upon you because you love us and you care for us. You told us not to worry and be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding shall keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. For you told us that this is the confidence that we have in prayer. That if we ask anything according to your will, that we know that you hear us. And because you hear us, God, we know by faith that we have the petitions, the request, the things that we desire of thee. So we thank you, Lord, that all your promises to us are yes and amen in Jesus Christ for the glory of God by us. So we praise you, Father, and we thank you for a wonderful week as we continue to give you praise. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we ask these blessings in Jesus' name. And all of God's people say amen. Amen. Amen, amen and amen. amen. May the Lord be with us all until we meet again. Go with God, and he would go with you. God bless you.